0: Pilate delivers him over. This is where we find ourselves. And we've been asking the questions throughout the semester, who is Jesus, what is he about, and why did he die? And today we see those last two questions come clearly into focus. Uh, What is he about, and why did he die? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into our rather lengthy text. Jesus, we pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to show us yourself in this text. Uh, what we read here looks only like a gruesome tragedy to many. Lord, show us the spiritual significance of Your death. Pray these things, in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, it's Easter week. S- some of you probably know, and uh, it's led me to ask a simple question, and it's a question I think that. Uh, most thoughtful people, especially those that aren't Christians, might ask themselves at this time, which is, why is the death of a Jewish peasant, which Jesus was, significant 2,000 years after the fact? Lots of answers could be given. You know, For instance, they could say, one billion people on this planet are crazy and deluded. That's one possible answer. Um, or, but what is it about his death that's significant that we would continue to commemorate it two millennia after the fact? And there's a number of possible plausible explanations uh, that he was a great man, might be one, but lots of great men have died, and uh, they don't have these kind of holidays that persist year after year, century after century. It could be that he was a great man that died tragically, and we certainly remember those men, um, but this is still different. It could be that he was a great man that died tragically and a very gruesome and violent death like the one we have here. And it's the case that thousands and thousands of men have died violently and tragically. Actually, since the dawn of time, millions of men have died violent deaths. And thousands and thousands have died unjust violent deaths like the one Jesus suffers here. He was innocent of these charges. What is it about his death that's significant? There was a 17th century pastor and poet named George Herbert. Awesome. No one fell asleep yet. I assumed I would say a 17th century poet, pastor, and you would all immediately fall asleep. Um, and he he, he put, or wrote, penned these uh, magnificent, rich theological poems. And one of them is called The Sacrifice 63 stanzas long. I'm not going to read it to you. Uh, but they, he details there from beginning to end the, the, the length and the depth of Jesus' sufferings, beginning before our text and ending when our text does as well. And at at the end of each stanza, he asks a question. Sixty-one times, uh, like a hammer, over and over, uh, Jesus asks, was ever grief like mine? Sixty-one times, as he details his sufferings. And the reality is, as you read those uh, stanzas, those 61 stanzas, there are other people that could say, yeah, I have experienced grief like that. But there are two other stanzas. 61 times he asks, was there ever grief like mine? There are two other stanzas where Jesus doesn't ask the question. He simply says, never was grief like mine. Never was grief like mine. Was George Herbert right that there was something utterly unique in Jesus' death and in his suffering among all the deaths in human history? It's an enormous catalog of all the tragic, torturous, painful, unjust deaths in human history, is there something here, in in the death of Jesus, that warrants our ongoing commemoration of a bloody, unjust death? Because otherwise, we might be a little bit crazy. There is. There is something significant, utterly significant and different about Jesus' death. And the reality is that even a few people in this text recognized it. Uh, More people realized it later. And we're going to see that in the unique sufferings of Jesus, we find our own salvation. That there is something unique about the sufferings of Jesus, and in them we find a a clue to our salvation. So we're going to talk about Jesus' unique sufferings, and then our own salvation. Now, uh, what tends to yell at us out of this text is Jesus' physical sufferings. Uh, They begin early. They actually begin even earlier than this text. They begin the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we're not going to do that. This text is long enough as it is. So we'll just pick up verse 15, where uh, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, scourged him. And uh, some of the text might read flogged. And it's a very simple word uh, to detail a very uh, brutal treatment. Uh, He was whipped with uh, a whip that would have contained probably bone and metal. It was cata. was categoric, well, it was calculated to rip uh, flesh from the body and uh, to cause massive bleeding. That was the intent. So he was scourged, and that's before all the other stuff happens. Uh, and then in verse 19, uh, a crowd of soldiers uh, beat him with a reed, and then they do some other humiliating stuff. But the physical treatment is they, they strike him, and then they lead him out. And uh, when they lead him out, it's not clear in the text, but he's forced to carry uh, the crossbeam of the crucifix. Uh, the vertical beam would have remained planted in the ground on the hill of Golgotha, awaiting its next victim. But the person to be crucified would have to carry their own beam the length of the distance. And it would seem that Jesus is too weak uh, due to the flogging and perhaps the night before Gethsemane to, to bear this of so someone else's pressed into service. And then in verse 24, uh, we read that they crucified him. And um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, and I'll make a note why in a second. But here, for those of you that aren't familiar, he would have been laid on the ground, uh, either his hands tied or more likely, for most people and certainly for Jesus, nails put through his wrist because the hand's not strong enough to bear the weight, Uh, one nail through both heels, and then the process of death, which was usually very slow and gradual. might take a number of days as the victim died from exhaustion or suffocation or loss of blood. It's very gruesome. So gruesome that Cicero, the Roman statesman, said, civilized people shouldn't think about crucifixion, talk about it, even conceive of it. It was a horrible, inhumane thing that civilized folks should even consider as existing. And uh, this is where Jesus is at this point. But I want to draw to your attention how little attention Mark pays to it. One word, and very little description follows about Jesus' sufferings while on the cross. At least, his physical sufferings. So that one man has written. It's pretty interesting, and you know this experientially. Uh, the The crucifixion is more often portrayed in art than any other scene in history. Go to an art museum; you're going to see scenes of the crucifixion. You're going to see Jesus on the cross. That this scene is more often portrayed in art than any scene in history, and yet has so crucial a moment ever been phrased so briefly and uninformatively. It's captured the imaginations of thousands of artists for hundreds of years. It fills our museums. And yet, in the description, one word. Just one word. Why is that? Well, there's a couple reasons, probably. One, Mark would have assumed people knew and didn't need to go into the gory details. But I think it's also because... uh, That's not all. It's not the extent of the suffering. There were sufferings to be borne than just physical pain. And lots of people were crucified. Two people were crucified on this day besides himself on this same hill. It's not Jesus' physical sufferings that make his suffering unique. It's something else. And so maybe it's his social sufferings. We see that too. Crucifixion was meant to accentuate two things. Physical torture and social humiliation. Uh, The cross was actually often tantalizingly close to the ground, not really high up, uh, to torment the victim with how close they are to liberation, but also so that passerbys could get right in their face and taunt them and spit at them. It was, of course, possible also that at times, the Romans were really good at this, they knew how to accentuate human cruelty, that someone like Jesus, for instance, who was a popular figure and supposed to be an insurrectionist, uh, they might actually place him really high on the cross, on top of a hill, where people from far away would see and know, oh, there's a crucifixion going on. We should go over there. But in our two cents. And here we see really the ugly side of humanity. Because at this point, we see the whole breadth and representative form come and scorn the Son of God. Uh, And just as representatives, we have in verse 17, sort of the, the pagans of the world. and I'm not using that as a derogatory term. These are outsiders. These are Romans. They don't worship the Jewish God. And um, they have their fun with Jesus. They have sort of a mock pageant. Hail King of the Jews. They strike him on the head. They spit on him. They put a faux cloak on him. Uh, They mock him. They mock him before his death. And then verse 22 says that they lead him out. And frankly, uh, perhaps for me, this would be the most terrifying moment. Mistreatment in private is bad enough, but to be led out publicly to receive the abuse that's about to come would have to be terrifying. You're literally at the mercy of the crowd. You are completely exposed to the world. And what happens in verse 29 and 30? You have the common lot of humanity. Everyday people just walking by, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and would raise it in three days. Aha, why don't you save yourself? everyday people, average Joes, come and throw their insults at Jesus. Then verses 31 and 32. uh, The Bible teachers, the scholars, the pastors, the religious faithful, the chief priests and scribes, they come and they throw in their two cents. You saved others. Can't you save yourself? Sort of interesting there. They sort of admit he actually did save others. Something they've never admitted this whole book. They can't help but admit it here at the end. And then they also make a mistake. You can't save yourself. Actually, uh, not doing something doesn't mean you can't do something. Uh, Just because Jesus won't do something doesn't mean he can't. But it is clear that he is not going to save himself. So the religious faithful, the Bible teachers, come and scorn him. And lastly, indignity of indignities. Verse 32. The fellow damned those who are also hanging on a cross as criminals being put to death, they too mock him. From the most powerful to the lowest. From the far off reaches of the earth, the pagans, to the faithful Bible teachers, and everyone in between, Jesus is mocked and humiliated. And yet, that is not what's unique about Jesus' suffering. Neither is physical suffering nor is social suffering is what's unique. What's unique is what happens next. And I really struggled to put a term to this. I termed it familial, but it also could be just called spiritual. So what happens in verses thirty-three and thirty-four. Jesus, by this time, has been left. Been, he's been betrayed by one of his friends, uh, abandoned by his other friends, denied by his closest disciples, uh, rejected by the, the Jewish court of law. At a Roman court of law, he's been mistreated. And there's only one person left in Jesus' corner one. And that's God the Father. And that's about to go away, too. We see in verse 33 that the sixth hour, uh, which is about noon, there was darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. And this is very biblical, apocalyptic language from the Old Testament. Uh, if you will, the earth frowns at the coming judgment. If you will, uh, the earth does its best to hide God's displeasure from what he's seeing. And in verse 34, Jesus speaks at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, um, crying out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemma sabachthani. You say, why is, oh, why don't you just use English, Jesus? Uh, this is the only time, actually, in the New Testament that Jesus is recorded as speaking in Aramaic. He's spoken Aramaic the whole time. But he's recorded speaking it here, and he's quoting. He's quoting Psalm 22, his last words of scripture. And he's owning it as his own. I don't think Jesus has a checklist in his mind of things he has to do before he dies. Certainly he does a lot of things before he dies. But this comes from his heart. And what he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And every word here is very important. Uh, First, the my God, my God. Up until now, God has been Jesus' Father. There's been only fatherly, affectionate terminology. And here in the darkest hour, Jesus musters, my God, my God. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is mad at the Father. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying something is different. And this, this relationship is, uh, is changed, at least for a moment. Where Jesus feels the distance of the Father and calls him, not Father, but God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? And this is important. Up till now, every other living human being has betrayed or forsaken Jesus. Well, not the Father. And if what scripture says is true about Jesus, then what we have here is the most tragic, sad abandonment in human history. Because Jesus was no normal human being. It's gone just like that. Uh, no normal human being. The testimony of the Bible, and even of this chapter, is that Jesus was God's Son, fully divine, pre existent, that he existed in glory from the beginning of time with God the Father, and that they enjoyed a relationship that you can't imagine. This requires imagination. Of unbroken, vulnerable, familial, loving intimacy. Every day. Peace and joy. Even during Jesus' earthly life. Until right now. I don't know why I'm pointing there. Until right now. in Verse 34. When for the first time, God the Father turns his back and abandons his son. And this perfect relationship, which had known only love and joy, the love and joy that comes from a perfect relationship marked by holiness and love and affection for the other, this is strained and broken. And this is where George Herbert, good pastor and poet, Throws us the first never. But, O my God, my God, why leave thou me, the Son in whom thou dost delight, to be my God, my God? Never was grief like mine. Never was grief like Jesus and this abandonment by His Father. So this is hard for us to imagine. It's easy for us to read the crucifixion and feel Jesus' pain Because we can imagine his physical suffering. That's what we most easily identify with. How horrible it would be to suffer in such a physical way. And it was horrible. And I'm not downplaying that at all. But it's not utterly unique. And it's not what Mark focuses on. Not the physical pain, not the social humiliation. But the abandonment by his own father. We think the physical pain and the social pain of the worst. Because we've never known what it is to be that close to a loving father. I'm not saying your daddy doesn't love you. But it's not perfect. It's never like this. You've never had anyone love you like this. You've never had a relationship like this that's been so tragically, painfully broken. So that Jesus, let me accentuate this, who is innocent, and who had always been close to his father, is now in his last moments God-forsaken. He is. He is left all alone in his pain and in his agony. Now for a question. Assuming this is what happened in Jesus' death, and it's not just Mark that teaches this, but lots of other places in the Bible teach this. Why? 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 It's actually the question Jesus asked on the cross. You see that? My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Why have you forsaken me? And it's an answer he doesn't get in this text. Jesus actually knows the answer. He shared it back in Mark 10. He shared it many times in Mark. He shares it in other places. He is a ransom. He knows he has to die. The night before he wrestled through this in Gethsemane, he asked the Father, please spare me from this, and then realized this is God's will, I have to do it. But in the midst of his pain, and in the midst of the abandonment, This is the experience that Jesus knew. Abandonment by the Father. Why? Why did the Father abandon the Son? Why did Jesus suffer in this way? It's for our salvation. It's for our salvation. And what we see that in Jesus' death, we have a perfect atonement. A perfect atonement. And that word atonement means sin covering. At exactly this time, On this day, at three in the afternoon, in Jerusalem, at the temple, a lamb would be, be, at that moment, being led into the temple to be sacrificed. In Leviticus chapter 1, it tells us this lamb is supposed to be perfect and spotless. He's supposed to be sacrificed, and the person that brings it as a sacrifice is supposed to lay his hands on the head of the animal, such that that animal's death sacrifices his own death. It's a life for life and the blood of that animal covers or blots over the sin of the person that offers it, and that's what Jesus is doing at this moment. Jesus is an atonement sacrifice. This is what he says. It's what he said over and over that he's come as a ransom to give his life for your rans- for your life by ransoming, by paying a penalty you can't pay. It's another way to look at it. He's also bearing a curse. Galatians 3, Paul writes that Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And he makes the argument that all of us, I say this over and over, I'll say it again, we try to do two things. What are they? Anybody? What are the two things we always try to do? Someone tell me you're listening. Whatever we want and to justify our souls by our own labors. By the works of the law, whether it's God's law or the law in our heart, we try to make ourselves right with God. And Paul and Scripture say, that way is cursed. That way leads to death every single time. And Jesus, who dies on the tree, bears that curse for you. He bears that curse for you. There's a good chance Are some of you here that are saying, this is the most crazy, cruel, barbaric, uncouth, bloody nonsense I've ever heard. And if there's not, you know people like this, and you should invite them. Because there are people that think this, and they deserve a good answer. But the reality is, we are all trying to atone for our sin. All of us. And an example I'll, I'll give you, I'll share with you, uh, this scene from the movie 13 Conversations About One Thing. It's a great flick. After celebrating an important court victory, Troy, played by the very handsome Matthew McConaughey, heads to the local uh, bar where he enjoys a few beers with all his friends and is so happy he actually buys around for everybody. And then he heads home in this shiny brand new silver BMW. And as he contemplates how much he enjoys his job, how content he is being a district attorney, putting away the bad guys... Suddenly, something white flutters past his windshield. He instinctively hits the brakes, hits something, hits the steering wheel with his head. Shocked, he looks up, discovers he has blood trickling from his temple. In shock, he gets out of his car. We see him walk around the front, stand over something. The camera angle shifts. We see a body not moving. He bends down, tries desperately to make himself reach out to touch the person. Can't do so see the person with a pool of blood by their head, and then we see him slowly stand up, look up and down the street, walk back to his car, sit in the car, start the engine, drive away. The story doesn't end there with Troy. He gets home. He sits up half the night. He drinks heavily. He ices his cut. And the movie follows him throughout the week along with other characters. By the end of the week, it looks like he hasn't slept in five days. Because he hasn't. Later in the movie, someone asks him if he can get a ride home from work. Troy replies, I don't drive anymore. To prove the point, later in the movie, he sells his car. And strangely, the cut, the cut on his temple, never seems to heal. Week after week, there's still a bandage there. Because Troy, flushed with guilt, won't let it heal. Just as it's about to heal every night, he pulls out a razor blade and cuts it afresh to punish himself. So to put it another way, what Troy is trying to do is atone for himself. Now some of you are thinking, that is screwed up. and I want to tell you, some of you are doing something very much like it. I don't exactly know what it is. But you find ways to emotionally, maybe physically, psychically beat yourself up to cover over your sin. You make pledges, you make promises to God, you try to bribe him if you can or pay him off because you don't think Jesus' sacrifice is enough for you. We all try to do this. Mankind has been trying to do this since the dawn of time and it doesn't work and it's never worked until now. Jesus offers the one perfect atoning sacrifice, the last, the final substitute so that everyone who trusts in jesus has access access to god this is part of the problem see we we actually just want to feel better about ourselves we don't act, the reason we're okay atoning for our sins that way is because we're just trying to bargain with god okay here you go i, I promise i pledge i'll work harder i get off my case so i can go back to doing what i want But if what you really want is nearness to God, access to God, only Jesus' death will do. And we see that in verse 37. Uh, Trust me, in verse 37, uh, Jesus breathes his last. And the text makes it look like it's very intentional. He is in charge of when he breathes his last. In verse 38, something happens. The temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. It's a very large curtain curtain. Uh, this is not something any man would do. This is a supernatural act, and it signifies a couple of things. that The time of the temple is done. And although this might be bad news for some of the folks in first century Palestine, it's good news for everyone. It means that the time of having to offer a sacrifice to be close to God is over. It means that the nearness to God that many of us long for, that could only be achieved through a priesthood and a system, is over. In the Old Testament, only one person got to be really close to the Father, close to God. That was the high priest. Once a year, he went into the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice with a rope tied around his ankle. In case he died, they could drag his carcass out. And here we have God splitting the curtain and saying, because of the death of Jesus, of my son, I am open. There is access to me available to all who would come to me through Jesus And it's really access for everyone, for all who will do so, who will come to Jesus. And we have here a reversal, if you will, of what we saw. A few minutes ago, the entire world was mocking Jesus. the Super religious, uh, super depraved, and everyone in between. What do we find here? Verse 39. A pagan murderer, a professional, a centurion, whose job was to kill people. Seeing how Jesus dies, says the centurion who stood facing him saw that he died and breathed his last in this way, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the best confession of who Jesus is in the whole book of Mark. I'm serious. No one gets it as good as this guy. He's a pagan murderer. Kills people for a living. He can have access to Jesus. A foreigner. Some guy pulled off the street in verse 21 they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, which was near Libya, who was coming in from the country. This guy's made to carry Jesus' cross. And I believe he comes to faith. Why? Because Mark throws in this crazy little footnote, the father of Alexander and Rufus. What's up with the family tree here? I mean, are we trying to kill someone or not? It's the story of Jesus' death, right? Why, why, why the family tree about this chap? Forced into labor here and pressed into service doesn't make any sense. Well, let me spell it out for you. They knew him. They knew the family. And in the Book of Romans, Paul actually addresses them. This guy came to faith, so did his family. And then there are the women. We're going to see more of them next week. Verses forty and forty-one. Everybody else has deserted Jesus. His best friends, his men. In his moment of greatest need, the Father turns His back. Let me explain. Because the Father cannot bear to look at sin. Jesus was bearing sin at that moment. This is not the Father's eternal disposition to His Son. But at this moment that Jesus is bearing sin, or rather the punishment for sin, uh, this is what the Father has to do. He has to punish His Son. So that Jesus is experiencing on the cross all the pain and suffering and judgment that all his people deserve for their sins. The Apostles' Creed says Jesus descended into hell. And my understanding is, his hell was on the cross at the moment he was experiencing God's judgment for sin. That's why the Father abandoned him. The folks that don't abandon him are these women. Uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and so on. They followed him, they ministered to him, and here in the greatest moment of need for Jesus, they're still with him. And this is important because in the first century, Palestine and the rest of the world, women, where were they? Overlooked, undervalued. No one cared about them. Mark makes a point. They were faithful. They were there. And we're going to see how important they are in the next chapter to this whole story. And then lastly, one of the religious leaders, these guys that mocked him, that have seemed to put him to death since the very beginning of the book, Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the same guy that worked really hard to put Jesus to death, who was also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear he should have already died. He had to take courage because this was sort of his coming out. He cared about Jesus. John tells us he'd met with Jesus. Jesus administered ministered to him and told him. Joseph of Arimathea... Likely comes to trust in Jesus and does so at great cost. Even Bible teachers and scholars have access to Jesus. It's remarkable. All kinds of folks, east to west, good people, all the way down to bad people, have access to God through Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? put that to the test. We don't know who this person is that's greatly annoying us and throwing some of us into anxiety. Right? Calling him bomb threats with great regularity. You think this person can come to know Jesus? Maybe he already does. just has a terribly weak faith. Who else? Who are the people in your classes that you think, there's no hope for this person? Or maybe yourself. You believe they have access to God through Jesus. There's hope for them. And if so, what should you be doing about it? What can you do? How can you bring them closer? What can you invite them to? How can you encourage them? Well, I want to speak directly to you and not to whoever might be potentially blowing up our campus. Uh, Two thoughts for you you don't need to hide. You don't need to try and atone for your own sins. You don't need to put on shows. You don't need to necessarily work harder to make yourself right with God. You don't need to act like you're better than you really are. I think the fact that God's Son was willing to die on the cross is a sufficient explanation of God's love for His people. You don't have to do that. You cannot pay for yourself. Jesus' death is sufficient for you to bear all your guilt, to cover all your shame. Come to him. You can't atone for yourself. And secondly, access. Some of you probably feel terribly distant from God. Maybe you feel terribly distant because you're in a pattern of habitual sin that you cannot get out of. And maybe you don't want to get out of it. And you think, there's no way God can love me because of this. Maybe you're just so busy that God is number 11 on your top 10 priorities. And you feel so distant, you don't know how to get back. There's only one way back. That's Jesus. He has bridged the distance by His life and death. You have access to the Father through Him. Trust in Him. Preach this good news to yourself. Jesus died for you. For all your sin, past, present, and future, to bring you close to the Father. You cannot make that relationship any better. You cannot make the Father love you any more. Sorry. Bad news, overachievers. You can't. You trust in Jesus and you want access to the Father, and nearness to the Father, preach the gospel to yourself. George Herbert concludes the poem with Jesus' words, and I want you to hear this and take it in, the depth of Jesus' suffering and grief for you, as a measure of His love. not to beat you up, but as a measure of His love for you, if you trust in Him. But now I die, Now all is finished, my woe, man's wheel, healing. And now I bow my head, only let others say when I am dead, never was grief like mine. Okay, let's pray together.